This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland Roshi, Sitting in the Fire 2, was given at the Fresh Breeze Meditation Retreat at the Sangre de Cristo Center in Tezuque, New Mexico, on July 6, 2011. Um, I want to, I'd like to do two things tonight. One is to pick up on some things we were talking about last night, and then the other is uh, to introduce the one koan we'll be working with tomorrow night and, and probably after that as well. Um, and also, welcome to those of you who came in. Last night, I... I uh, talked about how somehow here at this retreat together we are uh, sitting in the fire, sitting among the fires, sitting in the, um, right in it ourselves. And um, that's a a traditional koan view of our human life, that we're lotuses in the fire, which is a kind of a switch on the older view of lotuses as arising from the mud and the waters to to grow into something beautiful. And um, I think that that switch that gets made in in the Mahayana, in the koan tradition, is really an important one. So um, an example of the older view of, of lotuses as being that which is beautiful and pure, arising from that which is um, yucky and muddy, is from our very own um, sutra that Vimalakirti spoke. And it's a private Buddha who is someone who is focused on their own awakening to the exclusion of everything else and sees that awakening as requiring a kind of withdrawal from the world. Um, Such a private Buddha is describing the Buddha, praising the Buddha, by saying, unattached to the world, like the lotus flower growing out of the mud, you always enter well into the practice of empty serenity. But then, later on in the Vimalakirti Sutra, we get from Vimalakirti himself this other image of the lotus rising in the fire. So uh, later on the sutra says, The bodhisattva manifests experiencing the five desires and also manifests the practice of meditation. So the bodhisattva both, it's interesting that language, manifests experiencing the five desires and manifests the practice of meditation as though it's a sort of, um, that's the blossom that gets made from the lotus in the fires, this manifestation. And because the Bodhisattva does both simultaneously, this distresses Mara, who is the sort of the 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 devil figure, but the tempter, the one who's always trying to pull us away from um, goodness and into badness. So this distresses Mara because he can't take control. So if the bodhisattva is capable of both experiencing desire and practicing meditation and finding some way to um, marry those things, to balance them and live them together, this deprives Mara, the tempter, the devil, of any possibility of control. Because where's the hook? Where's it, where's it, what's he going to tempt us with if already we're in a relationship? with our own emotions and our own desires. 
um, if we're already able to balance the fact that we are human beings with feelings and desires and um, and difficulties and impediments and skills and glories and love and all of that um, if we're in a good relationship with that what's to tempt what's the problem so the Vimla Kirti Sutra goes on for a lotus to be born in the midst of fire can certainly be called rare to practice meditation within the desires this is just as rare so you have a you have a, um, a situation where um, the lotus doesn't put out the fires and the fires don't consume the lotus there's something there's something symbiotic that happens there it's a blossom made from that fire rather than a blossom rising above the mud Um, and it it seems to me that the big difference with these two images is is what um, what is being transformed when the lotus grows up out of the mud what is being transformed is impurity the impurity of the muddy environment when the lotus grows in the fire what is being transformed is the danger of the fire so what does it mean to be to transform our work from the transformation of impurity to the transformation of danger to me um, when we talk about impurity as the problem it kind of feels like game over it kind of feels like the end of the conversation because to frame our passions our desires our emotions our very feeling life as impure is so simultaneously self-loathing for obvious reasons right you yuck horrible feelings I have but at the same time as self-loathing also tremendously self-protective because then what we're doing is we're always trying to protect ourselves from temptation from impurity from the world from getting hooked from all of that kind you know we don't want the inner impurity to hook up with the external impurity and so um, you've got self-loathing and self-protection simultaneously and that feels like a really tough way to work to me Um, but when we think instead that what we're doing is working with what is dangerous things really change because then we're saying well what's dangerous what's fiery about our feeling lives about our passions and our desires well what's dangerous is that they can hurt us and others so this might seem kind of weird but that feels like a tremendously positive shift because it's relational we're worried about our fires because they can hurt others suddenly there are others that we're worried about suddenly we're in relationship suddenly the whole point of doing the the work of of transforming um, icky stuff into lotuses has to do with um, not hurting others and not hurting ourselves um, so the, so there is this movement from a view of um, I'm so yucky <laughs> here I am in the mud to 
I can cause pain. And that's different. If, if you go from, I can cause pain and therefore I'm bad, you've just returned to yucky. <laughs> you just made another way of saying I'm yucky. So if you stay with, I can cause pain, there is a funny kind of dignity in that. I am capable of having an effect. And if I'm capable of having a negative effect, if I'm capable of causing pain, I also must be capable of causing joy. And I must be capable of healing pain. So suddenly from being icky, we have a kind of dignity and a kind of power, an ability to affect things around us for the better if we choose. And at the same time, we can recognize and move toward the power of the fires that burn inside of us. Rather than moving away from impurity, we can move toward fire. Because we can see that there is a kind of power in that danger. What if we used the power of the fires that burn inside of us as a danger to what is habitual in us, a danger to what is limiting, self-limiting in us, a danger to those places that in, in the term of the Vimalakirti Sutra are self-obsessed. What if the fire in us becomes dangerous to our self-obsession? Danger, dangerous to our habitual patterns. Um, Dangerous to the way we limit ourselves and the possibilities around us. That's a kind of interesting possibility, no? If we can imagine coming into that kind of relationship with what is dangerous in us, what is fiery, then there's the possibility of tempering those dangers, tempering those fires, and being tempered by them, letting them burn us in a good way so that we can actually use them on behalf of ourselves and, more importantly, on behalf of others. The other thing that I wanted to, um, to bring up from last night is, is to keep talking a little bit about um, what we can learn from rocks and stones about fire, what they have to tell us about relationship with fire. And one of the ways that I think that relationship of rocks and stones to fire gets expressed in the koans is that someone will ask someone um, a really big question, you know, like about the fires or about life and death or about the world and um, the someone who is being asked will reply I am neither for it nor against it what, how do you feel about this world I am neither for it nor against it and um, this this neither for it nor against it is has nothing to do with indifference And it it has everything to do with actually experiencing what's going on. 
We spend, as we know, so much of our time experiencing our reactions to things and our opinions about things, to being for or against everything, including the temperature in this room, (laughs) the content of this talk. Um, You know, the couple of hours there still are to get through before bed. For or against. (laughs) All the time, right? To be neither for nor against is to be willing to drop all of those reactions and opinions to things and just to experience them directly, to just experience the temperature in the room, the tiredness you might be feeling, the droning on of the person at the end of the room near the door. That's the opposite of indifference. That's complete engagement. That's engagement without... Um, hedging your bets, right? That's engagement without finding a semi-comfortable place to stand and experience things. So um, in terms of what we can learn from the rocks and stones about fire, what's it like to be still in that way, to be still in our heart-minds, neither for nor against, in the face of a conflagration? What's it like to be full of the experience of the conflagration rather than full of our ideas and reactions to the conflagration? I also hear in that neither for nor against um, a sense of, and so we carry on anyway together. And so we are here together anyway, and we support each other anyway, and we do our work anyway, neither for nor against. We carry on, and that feels important. So from that, I want to make a couple of suggestions about your experience here at the retreat. Um, The first is, what would it be like if you were neither for nor against anything that happened to you in the next few days? I'll just let that sink in for a second. Whatever happens, you're neither for nor against it. And more radically, what would happen if for the next few days you were neither for nor against yourself. What would that be like? Neither for nor against yourself. One way we've said that in the past is it's a position of nothing to assert, nothing to defend. From the Vimalakirti Sutra, we might understand that being for or against, um, having self-regard or self-hatred are not different. They're both self-obsession. They're both a focus on an obsession with the self, either positively or negatively. And um, from that perspective, 
there no, there's no difference. There's nothing to choose between them. One is not better than the other. The position of the stepping back into neither for nor against is um, the movement that's suggested, not a choosing of for or against the self. So those are a couple of more thoughts about some of the implications I was talking about last night. And before I, I move on to the um, presenting the koan, any questions or comments about that part? Well, it's sort of remedial, I think. <laughs> um, so, back to self-obsessions and uh, uh, passions. <clears throat> so, um, so what you were saying is that you can, the lotus in the fire can use your passions to kind of quell self-obsessions and habitual patterns. Is that right? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it that way. I would say you can come to a point where um, you can have an emotional life, you can have a feeling life, you can even have passions and desires and all of that stuff without being self-obsessed. And once you can do that, it's not a problem anymore. It's like having ten toes. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, that clarifies it because my my passions are my self obsessions, mm-hmm. <laughs> and what you're saying is that, that they don't have to be. Yeah, they don't have to re- yeah. renounce yeah. them. Right, but right to not hold them so tightly. Exactly. Yeah. You can you can have the the problem is not with with the feeling or the desire or the passion. The problem is when we make that the most important thing. We put that at the center. And so, um, you know, one of the things that the, the Vimla Kirti Sutra says so clearly is we all choose what we put at the center of our lives. If we put the bodhisattva vow, if we put our bodhicitta, our um, aspiration towards awakening to benefit all beings at the center, um, suddenly all those obsessions and desires and cravings and everything that have been at the center aren't there anymore and therefore they're not problems anymore they're part of the landscape it seems like also uh, whatever the order is North Cape, South Cape, East Cape, Most Cape mm-hmm. that the passions like that open all the gates whereas the obsessions tend to, to wall so blow the doors open that's great. Yes, Kate, do you want to say more about that? No. Nope. <laughs> That's it. Okay. Where do you find those sutras that you're talking about? Um, it's the sutra that Kirti spoke, and there are um, a number of, of translations. Um, by uh, the, my favorite is by Burton Watson, and there's one by John McRae, and one by Charles Luck. And if you Google it, you'll 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 run across them. Um, and if you're interested in the talks thereon, speak to Marco about that, how to get those. The talks that I gave about have been giving about the Vimalakirti Sutra. Yeah. 
Margot can tell you how to get a hold of those. Anything else? Any other questions or comments about this? Does it make perfect sense to everybody? What about jumping into the fire? Is that different than what we're talking about? about using it? it What do you mean by jumping in? Well, okay, a picture like when we talk about this, the comfort zone, and then a picture like the the balance and the, the neither for or against. And then there's kind of like knowing there's a danger that might bring something else mm-hmm. that you don't usually know about. Mm-hmm. So there's that kind of coming out of that, I don't know if it's coming out of the balance, but coming out of that zone where you just kind of take a chance and the fire, you know it's hot, but you're going to go in anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is that different than what you're talking about? No, that's exactly <clears throat> exactly what I'm talking that's about. It? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, one of the things we do with the things that we think are really bad about ourselves is we make them so gigantic and so important in our resistance to them and our worry about them and our fear of them and our attempts to su- suppress, control, you know, um, put, in a, put in a small pen and, you know, muffle our ears and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, when we're talking about jumping in the fire, as I know you are, we're not talking about wallowing in those parts of ourselves that are really wounded. We're talking about really confronting them, really coming into a true relationship with them rather than a relationship based on kind of fear and, and, and a strange attraction, you know? What's really there? So then if you're afraid of the fire, mm-hmm. you just, you, it's almost like, okay, let's go. You take the fear with you into the fire. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. How um, how do you see discernment related to um, not being for or against? Where is discernment coming from? Discernment in what sense? Okay, okay, yeah, that's good. Okay, discernment in a good sense. Um, Discernment gets much clearer if it's based on a position of neither for nor against. Because then we're actually looking at what's actually there. And we're discerning based on a a direct experience unmediated by our opinions and our um, tendencies and our preconceptions. So it actually helps clarify discernment. But you still never know. You still never know. You still never know. I mean, you can have that kind of clarity in, in, in so many layers and subtleties to this mm-hmm. um, and try and find the path through it and, and have that sort of release that you're talking about about neither good nor bad and it clarifies discernment and at the same time you know it's such a zigzag path mm-hmm. and you can look back and you think damn it I should have zagged over there instead of zigging you know mm-hmm. but you don't know you just so that's it seems to me part of of not holding judgment on either side. It's just holding all of it lightly. Mm -hmm. And 
clarifying discernment and coming up with your best guess mm-hmm. and your best action and bottom line is so hard. Mm-hmm. And there's no knowing, really. There's just a best guess. Yeah, so, so then discernment becomes an ongoing process. It's not like you make a discernment, you land somewhere, and that's it. Exactly. You, it's so you, alive. You, it's very alive. And it, and it's so Right. Could you clarify how being either for or against and having discernment doesn't preclude walking away from something? Do you know what I mean? So, so one of the things we don't usually mean by in case there's nothing I dislike is that you know, you still move towards some things sometimes mm-hmm. and away from other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so um, it, I, this, this is going to sound sort of r- ridiculous, but it's actually true that you can be standing there watching an anvil coming towards you out of the sky, you know, and decide to move away, not because you're against the anvil, <laughs> you know, <laughs> But because, you know, by, by whatever process of discernment you've decided it would be a better outcome if you don't get crushed by it. But that's, that's still really neither for nor against. It's not doing it out of revulsion. It's doing it out of a discernment of the greatest good or something. Yeah. And, and that would extend to this another talk that you gave a while ago where you, you say you turn out feelings and you say, you know, somebody starts talking to you and you feel yourself opening and so on. And somebody else starts talking to you, and all you can think of is how you can get away as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So that's like the end of the moment. I mean, that's fine. It's it's like it's like the anvil, although you wouldn't take that for granted. You you'd want to you know hang out a little bit with the set, the the feeling that makes you want to flee, or the feeling that makes you want to lean in. You know, and see what you see what there is to understand about that. Yeah. So being neither for nor against isn't about being passive. It's about right. it's about a way of being very active yeah. and engaging. Yeah. So something doesn't get in the way. Yeah. Yeah. But if you come in for or against, there's so much already determined. It's kind of lazy. <laughs> you know. Well, I think that also <clears throat> constructs self, because then all of a sudden I'm the kind of a person who is against such and such. Mm-hmm. I'm the kind of a person who favors this. So then it's just building more and more castles in the air. Yeah. They're all in their way. Yeah. It's really like a prison to be for or against something. It seems like because. I mean, I, if you, you know, I, if you think about people and how you say, well, I, I just, I just can't stand people that have those kinds of bumper stickers on your car. You know, I can't stand people that, and, and so suddenly you have no experience of that person. You, you are completely jailed off, sold off from, from having an experience about that person. And when you stop being for and against it, it's rather surprising what can arise out of, out of those um, encounters. It's kind of started actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I also wonder about, I mean, really, do we really all have such 
excessive abundance of time, energy, and attention that we can worry about stuff like that? You know what I mean? I mean, is, are we all walking around with so much energy and so much kind of like psychic oomph that we can worry about, you know, like this and that, and you know, to have those for and against all the time, all over the place, everywhere? Really? If you have that kind of energy, I want some of it. <laughs> because it just, I mean, it's, it's, it, seems, um, it seems like a big expenditure of energy at the, at, the, at the service of what I'm not quite sure. I think it's sort of a collusion with other people. So it's sort of a, not a great way, but, but it is sort of a connecting. Like I, I can't stand bumper stickers. Yeah, I agree. I'm so... You're sort of cheerleading each other on in this way. And so it's false connection. Huh, huh. So it's, yeah, false connection at the expense of someone else. Yeah. I think too, because I really agree with what David said, so, so it turns out it's junk food, but it feels like energy bars. Because <laughs> you, know, like you, really you, know, you, you don't need the opinion of the poop is stinky to, to not eat it, you know. Right. But, you know, so I think this, I think that just like you were saying, and then you know, there's this constant sort of architectural project. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I think about, okay, so what are the causes and conditions of the things we really, um, that really hurt us, that we're, that, that, um, cause us sorrow, like, you know, the causes and conditions that, that led to the, the fire or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is that's really painful at the moment. I mean, if we take off on somebody's bumper stickers, we're, we're completely eliminating the possibility that that might be a place we could connect in working, you know, to ameliorate a, a situation that's painful to both of us, you know? I mean, I, I just, I don't think that there's such an excess of goodwill and good energy that we can afford to preemptively cut people out of the possibility of, of you know, of doing bodhisattva work together. In a way, all those opinions feel like they, they're kind of filters that keep us from having to extend energy. Exactly. Because they just, they just, they just, you only allow the stuff in that's, you know, meets your confirmation bias. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't have to deal with you. That's, okay, that's one less thing I have to do today. Yeah. So I think I'm going to walk down a trap door. Okay. I'm going to get something that you're thing at Los Alamos Labs. Mm-hmm. Gets Um, the difference between being this for and against that we're talking about and um, a discernment that something's really harmful and you're going to do everything you can to make it stop, those are not the same things. You can do that. You can discern that something is really harmful and you're going to do everything you can to make it stop, actually without being against it. Because that's just extra. If you've already discerned it's really harmful and you're planning to do everything you can to make it stop, to, to invest any energy in being against it is extra, you, Right? You've already done the important thing. Hmm? So she's discerning that nuclear, you know, most almost nuclear weapons lab is not a good thing. So that might lead to actions against the lab. Mm-hmm. Right, 
But that, but that's different than expending a lot of energy think, thinking of all the reasons that you hate it and it's bad and it shouldn't happen and, and it makes you incredibly uncomfortable. And all, that all of that psychic energy of being against something is, is energy just thrown away. That energy could be put into um, working to end you know, the nuclear power experimentation going on at Los Alamos. It's almost like part of the difference is in, instead of spinning around in the feelings, you know, it leads to more of a path of action. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, and it, to just carry that Los Alamos thing further in my younger years, I mean, I might have, every scientist that worked there, I might have had an opinion against, right? I'm not, I'm not going to talk to those people. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with them. But in this situation where people's homes are threatened, their lives are threatened, you know, maybe they're breathing, you know, contaminated air and other times they're not, um, you know, there, there may be a way to connect, you know, without being against it. I'm just, I'm just, these are just like new ideas for me, like that I'm trying to practice like in other parts of my life. It's, it's, Instead of just shutting it all off, you know, these are bad people. They build, you know, they're they're building nuclear stuff. These scientists, um, it's like it stops the conversation. Yeah, they're seeing if they're an ally at some level there. Yeah, and my suggestion would be if you have questions about this idea of um, being for, neither for nor against, it's good for us to to talk about it and lay some groundwork, but I really want to suggest you try those two things, being neither for nor against anything that happens during the retreat and being neither for nor against yourself. And spend a few days being neither for for nor against yourself and then see what you think about being neither for nor against. Okay, see if the experience of that changes how you understand what that might mean. Dessert, yes. <laughs> Which is different than enjoying dessert. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, I would like to um, introduce the con for the week. No, but are they, does everyone have one? Okay. Good. So this is called Dasue's Kalpa Ending Fire. A monastic asked Dasue, 
It's clear that the culpa-ending fire will completely destroy the universe. I'm still not clear whether there is something that won't be destroyed. Daswe said, it will be destroyed. Will it be gone with the rest? It will, said Daswe. Right, right. Yeah, yes, there's nothing that won't be destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, um, well, just to talk about a couple of things in there, um, a kalpa is a, a tremendously long, inconceivably long period of time in in Indian and Buddhist cosmology and there are all kinds of examples for how long a kalpa is and it's things like if you started with a mountain made of pure rock that was 16 miles by 16 miles by 16 miles which would dwarf Mount Everest and you um, wiped a a handkerchief against it once every hundred years uh, the the mountain would disappear before the kalpa ended (laughs) so it's a very long, very, very long time. And there are cycles of mahakalpas, or great kalpas. And so the universe is continually going through these, these endless cycles that begin in emptiness. There's the empty kalpa. Then there's the kalpa of formation, when things come into existence. The kalpa of existence, when things persist for a while. And the kalpa of destruction. And every kalpa of dis- every cycle at the end of the kalpa of destruction ends in this kalpa ending fire, when everything is is consumed in that. So the sense of endless giant cycles of uh, of emptiness, formation, existence, and destruction in the universe. Um, the other the other big question, of course, in the koan is what is this something? he's talking about is there something that won't be destroyed what what's he on about um, what's he worried about what does he hope doesn't get destroyed in the culpa fire is there um, you know is there something like Buddha nature or spirit or you know something like that that is somehow separate from the material world and wouldn't be destroyed when the material world is destroyed? Is the question quite personal and it's something like, um, do I have a soul that will survive? Will my consciousness survive? You know, all of those kinds of things. What do you think he's asking? And is there any, is there any resonance with any kind of question you have yourself? Um, there's... Um, some implications in Daswe's response that indeed there is nothing that wouldn't be destroyed in the, in the Kalpa ending fire. And one of them was expressed by uh, Hakuin, a great koan teacher of the 18th century in Japan. He said, he said of, of Daswe's, it will be destroyed. This is a terrifying statement. The ancients appreciated that too. So there's a sense that this is, there's something really. <gasps> about this and there's meant to be it's not meant to be um, kind of simple or light it's meant to, to, to call something that has sort of awe um, and perhaps fear in it <coughs> <coughs> 
So Daswai is saying that there is no eternal principle underlying the universe. There is no something eternal and, and um, unchanging and separate. There is no soul. There is no persistent consciousness. Okay, so, so then the story out of which this koan comes continues. Not accepting Daswai's response, the monastic left and went to the teacher Toza, to whom he recounted this conversation. Toza turned to his altar, lit incense, bowed to the Buddha, and said, The ancient Buddha of Sichuan has appeared, referring to Daswai. Then he turned to the monastic and said, You should go back there as fast as you can and make amends for your mistake. The monastic hurried back to Daswai, but Daswai was already dead. He returned to Toza, but Toza, too, had died. I find this also sort of awesome, you know, and, 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 um, you know, really moving, you know, this this story. Um, So then there's a couple of um, a couple of notes, one about the kalpa. And uh, just uh, something I threw in because I love it so much. In a curious rhyme, Daswai was the firekeeper when he was a young monastic at Guishan's monastery. So all these years later, he's still the firekeeper. Um, Shuedo wrote a verse about this koan. He said, Caught between destroyed and not destroyed, the monastic asks his question in the light of the kalpa fire. Isn't that great? The monastic asks his question in the light of that very kalpa fire he's asking about. We do everything we do in the light of that kalpa fire. Touchingly, it's because of a single phrase, it will be destroyed, that he travels back and forth for 10,000 miles alone. So I want to say just a little something about the um, the two teachers, Daswe and um, and Toza, both of both of whom were sort of eccentric. Um, they lived in the in the tenth century, and um, Daswe lived for more than ten years in the hollow of a large tree be- behind an old decrepit temple on Mount Daswe, which is where he got his name. And um, Toza, Toza is someone I actually really like a lot, although there isn't a lot we know about him. He, was, he remained a hermit for 30 years and, and um, didn't get famous and didn't do a lot of stuff. And it was, it was the great Jiaozhou who went and sought him out and found him and brought him um, to our attention. And if you notice, there's a kind of um, blessing on the door. A monastic asked, one dharma refreshes all beings everywhere. What dharma is that? And it was Toza who answered the falling rain. And then I wanted to read um, one more thing that was really characteristic of his, um, of his style and something I think is so important. So one day Toza entered the hall and said to his assembly, All of you come here searching for some new words and phrases, collecting brilliant things which you intend to stick in your own mouth and repeat. (laughs) 
But my energy is failing and my lips and tongue blunder about. I don't have any casual talk to offer you. I'll answer you directly if you ask me something, but there's no mystery that can compare to you, yourself. There's no mystery that can compare to you, yourself. I won't teach you some method to collect wisdom. I'll never say that anywhere in heaven and earth there's a Buddha, a Dharma, something ordinary versus something sacred, or that you will find it by sitting with your legs crossed. You all manifest a thousand things. The understandings that arise from your own life is what you must carry into the future, reaping what you sow. So he says, there's no mystery that can compare to you, yourself. You all manifest a thousand things. The understandings that arise from your own life is what you must carry into the future, reaping what you sow. I have nothing to give you, either externally or internally. All I can do is speak to you like this. If you have doubts, question me. Portosa, a monk asks, when it is not received internally or externally, then what? <laughs> Toza asked, are you trying to collect wisdom? And left. So, um, in, the, in the rest of the story, in the first phrase, not accepting Daswe's response, the monastic left, Here's, here's an example of um, possibly something to think about is the difference between um, being for or against. He's against what Daswe has to say because it's not for him. It's not what he wants to hear. Uh, so that's one possibility. So what about that being for or against versus the situation that we're all familiar with many times in our lives of making a discernment, this isn't right. This isn't the place for me. This isn't the teaching for me. Um, This isn't the situation for me. How do we know? Um, How do we know in that moment? I mean, I think Pat would suggest we don't know. We can't know. So how do we, what do we do to make, to make as sure as we can that we're, um, we're discerning clearly and not making a for or against? And how do we know when it's time to move? when it's time to take a stand, when it's time to walk away. So that's, that's one of the, um, the, the, the questions I hear echoing in the rest of the story. Also, this, um, this thing about death. Here he is focused on the great death, the death of everything in the universe, the annihilation of everything. And in doing that, he misses what's right in front of him, which are the people you know, Daswe and Toza, and they die because he's, not because he's focused somewhere else, but while he's focused somewhere else. And he misses that possibility of connection with them. In Shuido's poem, that sense that he's asking the question in the light of that kalpa ending fire, you know, is that, is that that fire is already burning, which is something we've begun to talk about this week. And I think about, you know, Tenny talking last night about, you know, what will happen is already happening. 
And so what's it like to come into relationship with it here and now? If, if what will happen is already happening, does that mean that nothing matters or that everything matters very much? Where do you go when you think about everything's going to be consumed in the great kalpa fire? Does that mean nothing matters? Does it mean everything is very precious because it will rise and fall? Is there something that has to persist like a soul or a, a consciousness to make it all worthwhile, to make it all meaningful? And at the end of Shuido's poem, um, how many times have you journeyed alone on account of a question? How many times have you gone 10,000 miles back and forth because of something that you needed to find some kind of resolution to? So... Jiaozhou, who found Toza after 30 years of obscurity, wrote some turning words that speak to this, I think. He wrote, The Buddha made of wood won't pass through the fire. If it does, it will surely burn. The Buddha made of clay won't pass through the water. If it does, it will surely drown. The Buddha made of metal won't pass through a furnace. If it does, it will surely melt. The true Buddha is sitting in the house. So what's that? What is that true Buddha sitting in the house? It's us. <laughs> it's us? Yeah. 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 And what is it? Hmm? I said it's each of us. Yeah. And what is it about the wooden Buddha that has to burn and the metal Buddha that has to melt? Is there something wrong with that? No. Life is sticking wires of wisdom in their mouth. The house will burn. The house will burn too? That the true Buddha is there? Yeah. Buddha made of flesh <laughs> won't pass through the world. <laughs> it will surely rot. Yeah, yeah, just so. Is there a way to imagine turning that from a sense of loss and destruction to one of it is a wooden Buddha's nature to burn in a fire, right? It is, it is a clay Buddha's nature to dissolve in the water. That's throwing ourselves into the fire in the way that you're talking about. What, that is neither for nor against. That is doing what is our nature. But then we have these internal firefighters inside of us, right? <laughs> and that's the part that, I mean, they too are going to be burned. So mm-hmm. that's kind of interesting. If you take that part out, then you can really go in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible to understand the monk as having understood that his question is now the answer and that he teaches not? 
Say the last phrase again. Is it possible, do you think, to imagine the monk is understanding this question as being answered in the two teachers' thought? That that, that that dissolves the question? How, how do you see that? Say more. Because um, whatever it is, even if it's nothing, even if it's no, you know, it's, it's something <coughs> that play. And when the two teachers die, the important thing is that everything that matters is all the same play. Mm. And it isn't, it couldn't be what you loved or weren't in play. It couldn't be what you loved? What you loved if it weren't in play. If it weren't in play. Mm. And as soon as you, as soon as you wrestle in the cup and in fire, isn't there something that won't be destroyed? Even if it's nothing, you're, you're trying to reserve something. Yeah. And the practice teaches you over and over again to expend enough to reserve. Yeah. To which to expend? To expend enough to reserve. Yeah. You, so like the play is enough. You mean yeah. Your teacher, your teacher just died. That dissolves the question of whether something will be dissolved or not in the coffin. I would destroy the coffin. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a kind of quality of trying to cut a separate deal for yourself. You know. <laughs> oh, my soul will survive, right? My consciousness will survive. Yeah, but it's okay because I'm cutting it for all beings. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Buddha nature will survive. As though Buddha nature were some holy spirit that yeah. that stays constant and runs through all things and is eternal. Right. Right. Michael, you, do we know what happened to the monastic after he finds out? That's it. That's as much as we know. Are the teachers 10,000 miles away? Is that what that refers to? It's metaphorical. They're not literally 10,000, but they're a, a great distance. Yeah, I think I think this koan and this and the story around it and Shoido's verse and all that. I think it's so rich and contains so many possibilities that you're you're all touching on. And that's why I wanted to introduce it tonight, so you have a chance to spend some time with it, and I can give you some background because I think you know there's a lot a lot here and a lot we can do. So here in this retreat where um, nothing too terrible is likely to happen and everybody's intentions are pretty good and we're all um, here trying to do something together as well as individually in this kind of perfect environment in this lovely place where your meals get served to you three times a day and... um, Everything is available that you need. Practice here. Try here being neither for nor against anything that happens. And notice how hard it is to do. Even in such a sort of um, special and easy 
what? You say, easy? Are you crazy? Um, but non, um, non-threatening except in all of the best senses. Dangerous only in the really good ways, right? Right? Dangerous in really good ways, dan- not dangerous in, um, in harmful ways. Notice how hard it is here to be neither for nor against and see if that can help you develop an understanding of the power of that practice. And neither for nor against yourself. Notice how many times a minute you're for or against yourself. Really. And what would it be like to have nothing to assert, nothing to be for, and nothing to defend, nothing to be against? Okay? Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.